This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's Friday, November 17th, 2023. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Israelis are living in reality. It's not an especially happy reality right now, but at least it's real. I mean, every society has stories they tell themselves, but in Israel, I detected much more of a shared existence than I see here. There is no widespread conspiracy theorizing about how October 7th was an inside job, how October 7th was a false flag. People have questions. There aren't great answers right now, but there's no cottage industry equivalent to QAnon or just the pure reality denialism in the public realm that you often see in the United States. In a word, I would say that Israel lacks the decadence of the United States. Decadence isn't a choice, it's a condition. And the comorbidities are abundance, safety, and lack of material friction or hardship. When war is a regular part of your life, decadence isn't really an option you can reach for. But I met young soldiers, 22, 26, newly minted lawyers or currently studying economics, politics, and philosophy, but they're also fighting in Gaza. And in the U.S., it's usually one or the other. You either study or you fight. Two different classes of people, and therefore they can opt for two different realities, two different life experiences. And mostly, if you look at the psychographics and demographics, of the sectors of society that soldiers and full-time students are drawn from, they're entirely different as well. The Israeli youth are into TikTok and social media as much as the U.S. youth are. Hell, they call Israel startup nation. 18% of the country's GDP is in the tech sector. That's double that of the United States. But in Israel, they don't seem so bummed out about it. Some are religious. Some are studious. Most are resilient. All serve in the military. And when I speak of decadence in the U.S., I know I could come off like an Old Testament prophet or just old, but I don't think decadence deserves punishment as a prophet would. I think it describes the condition of our society, whereas it doesn't really apply to Israel. So I was speaking with the former Israel Central Bank Governor, Karnit Flug, and she expressed confidence that the economy there would recover. She also pointed out that Israel went from being a basket case of a GDP to debt ratio country, 284% in 1984. Last year, it was 60%. So for some perspective, economists worry when debt gets higher than 100% of GDP. In the US last year, we were at an all-time high of 129%. If that's not a sign of decadence, consider the decadence of believing that 129% doesn't matter. You know, because reserve currency and the world is denominated in dollars and all that just doesn't matter. I think that's wrong. But even if it's right, it's still decadent. An argument that no, actually, there are no consequences for choices that should be consequential. If you want to be tethered to anything real and not have your thoughts and anxieties float off into conspiracies, you need things like consequences. I wouldn't wish a war upon us. Of course not. But I don't know if I would define as Peaceful, our current American existence, abundance without satiety, concern without a cause, 
anxiety without actionable items, it's all just a little decadent. When you have an enemy who has declared that they want to kill you, it's dangerous, but it focuses the mind. The free floating variety of doom and dread, it's less visible, it's more slow, but destructive in their own right. On the show today, what was found at Al-Shifa Hospital and what they should have been looking for. But first, Robert Pape is a professor of political science at the University of Chicago and director of the Chicago Project of Security Threats. We discuss who is drawn into international terrorism versus domestic terrorism, each of which he has proved to be an expert on. We get into the mindset of the January 6th rioters, and we talk a little bit about how surveys need to be more careful in their wording. Robert Pape up next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. The Department of Homeland Security has designated as a national priority domestic violence extremism. If you watch the news, if you follow the cases arising from January 6th, it's not hard to understand why. A very top researcher in this field, one who I've wanted to talk to for a while, is Robert Pape. He's a professor in the political science department at the University of Chicago and director of the Chicago Project on Security Threats. He's been conducting studies on the dangers to democracy. Welcome to The Gist. Thanks for having me, Mike. So I know you have done a lot of work on studying suicide bombers, suicide terrorists, but tell me, there are certainly parallels between those type of terrorists and the extremists from January 6th and domestic extremists. Who would be drawn to such an action as Islamic or international terrorism versus who is drawn to domestic extremism? Uh, well, one of the big um, similarities between, um, uh, say, those who attacked the Capitol on January 6th um, and ISIS terrorists um, is they really believe genuinely in that their actions are benefiting a community. Uh, it is uh, not simply an excuse. It's not simply a fig leaf. It's not a dodge to avoid, say, law enforcement. Um, so when you when you look very closely, so as as you know, Mike, but just to tell your listeners, with with suicide terrorists and also with other insurgents, um, I've conducted huge profiles of suicide terrorists. Uh, my my book, almost 20 years ago, Dying to Win, has to this day the largest uh, study of suicide terrorists, 462, um, and there's deep profiles and so forth. And one of the giant um, uh, what you learn from these comprehensive deep dives into that psychology uh, is that it's not simply about religion. Um, it's not simply about uh, being born in a or grown up in a madrasa where you're brainwashed, essentially in a basement, so to speak. Uh, that's really not what's occurring. What's occurring is a deep belief um, that they are doing these actions for a community and especially an oppressed community. 
a community that they see is under siege. Well, that may come as a surprise to some, not maybe so much to some of your listeners, but you know, keep in mind we had Iraq um, uh, and other part other Muslim countries essentially under military occupation for many, many, many years. Um, and even though we didn't think of that as occupation and sort of uh, putting a lot of pressure on these societies, uh, many folks in those societies did see it that way. Um, and so this led to this rise of suicide terrorism. And then now that we've taken most of our military forces out of the Middle East and other uh, countries that were producing suicide terrorists, that whole phenomenon has gone away. I mean, there's literally in the last three months, we study this, Mike, and there's three suicide attacks in the Middle East uh, and Northern Africa in the last six months of the year. That's compared to many hundreds just when we had our armies there. So anyway, now, if you look at January 6th, so bring some parallels here. So we've also done uh, at the University of Chicago Project on Security and Threats, deep dives uh, into each and every one of the 10,066 individuals who have been charged as of August 1st of this year for breaking into the Capitol. Uh, we do deep, deep dives into them. And if your listeners will go to our website, uh, we call it CPOST, C-P-O-S-T, um, you will be able to see these massive reports. Uh, the January 6th committee, others folks have benefited by these massive reports, but these are massive reports. Uh, anyway, they can go and learn quite a bit about it. Well, what you will quickly learn is that um, that from the voluminous court documents and stated motives and interviews and posts on Facebook and oh my goodness gracious the uh, amount of material we have to study the motives of the January six uh, uh, riders you will see they really believe that their country as they saw it was under siege now that kind of stunning here for you know sort of others not part of that mindset. But nonetheless, they really believe that the election was stolen. This wasn't just an excuse. Uh, they really believe this was part of some malicious, maniacal plan. I mean, Donald Trump and others are telling them that every day. Um, and what they're thinking is, my goodness, the country's under siege. This is a moment if we don't stand up now, we may never be able to get the country back again. Well, that is not identical to what I just described with suicide bombers, but it is not 180 degrees out. Um, so I wouldn't want to say it's exactly the same, but there's more, there's more of this idea of uh, violence being legitimate when you believe your community is under siege and you see it then in self-defense. You don't see this as hurting others. You see this as defense defending those you love. That's what many of those folks on January 6th uh, express. And to this day, they think that. From your studies of what drives the January 6th rioters, do you think the prosecutions we have seen will change their minds? I'll just read some stats. The stats I have are of July 2023. There were 629 defendants pleaded not guilty. 129 others went to trial of which there were 87 convictions, some of the very high-profile convictions. Dominic Pizzioli got 10 years. Um, Joe Biggs got 15 years for seditious conspiracy. Enrique Terrio got 22 years for his role in the attacks. So will those high-profile sentences 
the consistency of the sentencing change the minds of the average person who entered the Capitol? I'm so glad, Mike, you asked that question because we just have on our website uh, virtually new, it's, it's, it's weeks, a few weeks old, uh, report and analysis um, of those who have gone all the way through the court process. And the bottom line is most have regrets, but not repudiate the political goal. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is, so what we did, what we do at the University of Chicago Project on Security and Threats, CPOS, is we study each and every person who was charged with breaking into the Capitol, but not just on the day of they were charged, we follow them all the way through the court process. And then we are able, once they go through sentencing, to get a very good picture of, well, how much do they regret? How much do they say they repudiate? Meaning, to repudiate, you have to say, I now accept Joe Biden as the legitimate president of the United States. Regret means, yeah, I'm sorry I punched a cop. So the uh, there's a difference here, Mike. So this was, again, the difference between the mo violent mode, being violent, punching a policeman, and then also the goal, which was, as they saw it, to save America from an illegitimate president. Well, there, what you see is there are hundreds who, who, who say they regret that they uh, got involved in violence, but there's tiny numbers at, you know, we're talking about less than 10, tiny numbers who will go so far as to say, I now accept Joe Biden as the legitimate president of the United States. I realize the election was not stolen. Well, that means, Mike, that in the future here, these are really pretty soft changes of heart. It, I'm not saying they're not sincere. We can't really tell how sincere they are, but I'm not challenging the sincerity in any way. What I'm pointing out is what's motivating them was not some lust for violence. Um, at 90% of these were not members of fight clubs like the Proud Boys or Oath Keepers, another thing the media seems to have overlooked. 90% um, were, were not, and, and many of them were doctors, lawyers, architects. Uh, uh, they had been to the White House Christmas parties. Um, these were donors from the donors class. Anyway, and what they were motivated by was a lot of people in real estate on flying in on private jets, um, staying at the Willard Hotel. Um, you know, so what, what I'm saying is these were not folks with a lust for violence. They were really, they, they really got in the belief they were saving the country. And so I really think that this is not, it's, it's not far-fetched that under a dip, you know, some future circumstance, they may believe the country is under threat again. So on that point you just made about repudiation, this will call on you to make a, an ought is distinction, but isn't repudiation of violence kind of the best we can hope for? Okay, it's not ideal. We'd like this huge sea change and 180 degree change, but what we know about how people believe and how wedded they are to their beliefs and how when doomsday doesn't come for a doomsday cult, they just update their beliefs. Maybe we just have to say, okay, there is a percentage of people that just are going to have ideas that are antithetical to what we know to be the truth but if we could at least convince them to pursue those ideas through civic means and not violence, that's a functioning democracy. That's okay. That is right, Mike, but we can do better than that. We can take that uh, little the idea you started with and we can go even further. 
In our dangers to democracy surveys, we're tracking not just anti-democratic attitudes, support for violence in the body politic. By the way, this is published every three months in The Guardian. We're also tracking the people in the country who abhor political violence. And you know the striking thing our surveys have found over and over and over again for nearly a year? 80% of the public, and I mean 80% of Democrats and 80% of Republicans, abhor political violence. Now, there is a, a fraction, 10, 15%, who don't, and that's really worrisome, and we'd like to shrink that down. But that 80%, Mike, who abhor political violence, that's an untapped, mobilizable pool that we can lean into. And that's what we're doing at the University of Chicago. Let's talk about conceptualizing the extent of the problem. So this isn't one of your surveys, but on well, soon after January 6th, a much heralded study came out of the uh, California Firearm Violence Research Center at UC Davis. Sounds very official. I think it was run by an emergency room doctor, however. They found that 18.7% of Americans agreed or very strongly agreed that violence or force is needed to protect American democracy. 20% thought that political violence is at least sometimes justifiable. And over 50% agreed that in the next several years, there will be a civil war in the United States. I found, I said so on the show, I found those figures literally unbelievable. Having read your surveys and knowing your methodology, I know you think those numbers are way too high. The, those numbers are too high, Mike. And um, so, so look, um, um, a lot of this boils down to being a little more concrete when you ask your survey question. Now, you can't be super concrete or then nobody knows what you're talking about. But the fact of the matter is uh, we have learned, I, I come at this not from a political pollster trying to estimate or predict voting patterns, but from somebody who has studied political violence for 30 years and also support for political violence in say foreign wars, when we go to war. Well, we know in our, in our survey, uh, you know, there's a whole school here who knows how to do this when we talk about public support for going to war, whether it's Iraq or Ukraine. And if you ask people too general of a question, you'll get a big number. But as soon as you start putting some constraints and some specifics on it, uh, which we know as experts to do, uh, you get more bounded numbers. And that's and that is true um, in general. Now, what's happening, the survey you cited is more of the kind that's easy to have the higher inflated numbers. I think it gets a lot of people worried about their fellow Americans. Um, it seems that your actual numbers or better numbers or more methodical numbers bounce somewhere in the high single digits to low single digits of people who say that political violence is sometimes justified. That's right. It's around, it's around 10, maybe if you kind of include a variety of different goals, you get up to 15% of the population, which we shouldn't, you know, discount. That's still, you know, 20, 25 million people. That's not a of adults. It's not a, a tiny, a tiny number, but nonetheless, that is uh, the, uh, I, I think, the most reliable, accurate estimate because um, what you're seeing here is you're seeing um, uh, the way we're asking these questions, we're taking into account, um, would you support violence for X even if some people were injured or killed? Um, and you can do this directly. Let me just give you an example. 
If you ask people, uh, do you support a national divorce? You'll end up with almost 20% of the public saying, oh, sure. But if you then say, do you support a national divorce, even if um, thousands of Americans are killed? Oh, my goodness, that falls by two thirds. How about do you support a national divorce, even if China becomes the dominant superpower in the world? No, that, again, falls by. So you, you, you need to put some consequence here into it. Um, and we've been doing that for years. And, and the truth is, we're not coming at this the way a pollster who's studying voting patterns would be coming at it. Because typically, when you ask somebody who you vote for, you don't say, well, would you vote for somebody even if a member of your family died, for instance? I mean, so suddenly people wouldn't vote. So, so voting, you don't have this. It's a very, So that's why it really is helpful to have some folks who know something about political violence um, uh, involved in, in these surveys. But is, do you think that 15% number may be too high? I've read, and I know that you've read, that researchers at University of Chicago, other places, Dartmouth, found that the number of people, once you really press, how much, how many people really endorse political violence, it's 6.86%, which is somewhere in your range, sort of the midpoint around your range. And then I come to this finding in the survey where you put some flesh on the bone of under what circumstances would people endorse political violence. The number one reason that they said they would endorse political violence or that political violence is justifiable is to quote, protect the voting rights of black Americans and other minorities, which to my knowledge has never come up. There has never been violence toward that goal. There's been violence against black Americans wanting to vote. So I wonder, however, this is what I think. Are they saying something like, abstractly speaking, there are just some things, some political things worth fighting for? And I wonder if you take that part out of it, uh, protecting the right of black Americans, what overall percentage would say they support political violence? Yeah, yeah. So let me take your second point first. So absolutely, Mike, what we're picking up in these surveys, even when we ask about violence, is anger, deep anger. Now, that often is the pool from which violent actors come from. But there's a lot of psychosocial reasons, um, we'll call them biographical reasons, why not everybody who's supporting violence would actually do violence. So that's a that's a gap right there. And that's very important to understand. So let's take January 6th. On January 6th, there are about 100,000 uh, people in the crowd at the Ellipse listening to Donald Trump's speech. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 2,000, maybe 2,500 broke into the Capitol. So that's only, what, 3% maybe who broke into the Capitol. And so notice that 3%, though, that turned out to be a lot of people because they overwhelmed Capitol Hill police. Now let's go come to the first part of your question because you're right, there's people you know, trying to pick on our surveys and this is what happens in academe where we don't get along, we fight with each other and we like to do that you know, because we get more journal articles that way. But, but here's the thing, Mike. So let's, let's say that uh, the number is not 9% like, like we're saying or 12%, but it's only 3%. This is still a huge number. This is, there's, there's nothing. So, so uh, now we think it's closer to our number. We've done more experiments. We've done more work. To, we think we have the best estimates, but we just got to be, let's just make sure we understand this. If the number is only 3%, we're good and we're, no, this is a very dangerous world because that means it's about 12 million American adults 
here. And this is very bad news for America. Robert Pape is a professor of political science at the University of Chicago, founder and director of the Chicago Project on Security and Threats. They call it CPOST. Thank you so much, Professor Pape. Thank you, Mike. Terrific conversation. And now the spiel. So here are the New York Times headlines for the last five days. This is the lead story every day. I have the physical paper in front of me. I didn't realize that they were playing this story so big until I got home and checked up on the newspaper. Monday, claim of Hamas tunnels under hospital faces test. Tuesday, hospital shakes in Gaza as fights rage at doorstep. Wednesday, Israeli military reports assault at Gaza hospital. Earlier videos were said to show weapons in a children's facility. Thursday, Israeli capture of hospital may shape course of war. Army defends raid, but global concerns could limit duration of offensive today. The first day that wasn't the lead story. Israelis comb Gaza hospital for an enemy. Seek signs of Hamas. Allies urge restraint. Now today, Israel... The defense forces have taken over the grounds of the hospital. They've begun showing the media caches of weapons seized and broadcasting tours of underground facilities connecting the grounds of the hospital to rooms with furniture, sink, toilets, and more weapons. The military broadcast a different video a couple days ago where the guy there, Rear Admiral Daniel Hagari, showed weapons, living quarters, supplies for babies, but did also seem to interpret every bit of ambiguity in the most sinister way. A woman, clothes and a rope, a rope next to the legs. Or could have been just a rope. But like I said, there were lots of weapons. There was an underground lair. A different video shows a cache of weapons seized from the grounds of Al-Shifa Hospital. That's in Hebrew. The Daily Beast then made some jokes about the videos in an article written by a professor of digital media at a Qatari university. Headline, Israel's comically bad disinfo proves they're losing the PR war. In fact, the PR war is highly correlative to the real war, but it's not entirely overlapping. I mean, either there were weapons hidden in and around Al-Shifa Hospital or there weren't. Either Israel is lying or Hamas is. How do we determine? I suppose the standards of journalism are to allow readers to make up their own minds, though I don't know how readers always have the tools to do so. And one standard technique, quoting a spokesperson for each side, has its flaws. The New York Times reports as we speak that their journalists are being shown shafts leading to tunnels under the hospital, though the Times also reports, quote, the controlled visit did not settle the question of whether Hamas, the armed Palestinian group that rules Gaza, has been using Al-Shifa Hospital to hide weapons and command centers, as Israel has said. Well, what about the guns and the grenades and the uniforms? They were mentioned in the front page story of the Times, one of the ones I read to you. Well, the Times does dutifully quote Hamas, quote, a Hamas spokesman, Osama Hamdan, on Thursday accused Israel of planting the guns, protective vests and military uniforms and other equipment that Israel said it had found in the hospital complex. At a news conference in Beirut, Mr. Hamdan called the Israeli video, quote, a weak and ridiculous narration. He added, quote, the occupation resorted to this farce to cover up the fall of its alleged story. The Times doesn't offer any context, doesn't document other infamous Osama Hamdan denials, like this one a few weeks ago on Al Jazeera. 
Why is Hamas attacking civilians? Well, uh, there, there was no attack against the civilians. All what was uh, declared but by Hamas. Let me jump in there, Mr. Hamdan, if I may, because a statement by the UN Secretary General clearly says that he's appalled by reports civilians have been attacked and abducted from their own homes. And we've seen videos, in fact, of what... Credit to Al Jazeera for the challenge. Hamdan's answer was a long and winding redefinition of what constitutes a civilian. And aside from his assertion that Hamas didn't kill any civilians, Hamdan has also said in separate interviews that Hamas only kidnapped soldiers. This again from Al Jazeera. And we call them from day number one. They are not hostages. They are not war prisoners. They are captives. And we will release them as soon as the situation has changed. So you're, this you're is saying why. now, if you don't mind me asking, you are saying now, you're claiming now that Hamas fighters did not take any non-combatants, the only people that the Hamas fighters took were soldiers or members of the security services? We, we don't need to take more than this. Hamdan, in this instance, used slightly different reasoning than he did with the killing of non-combatants. When it comes to hostages, Hamdan did not try to redefine civilian. His point was that the Israel army failed so badly that Hamas didn't need to take non-soldiers. Take non-soldiers though they did. But still, there he is quoted, believe him if you will. The Times could not verify it, just as they could not verify, well, I'll read you this, quote, the Times could not verify the provenance of the weapons. And on Wednesday, quote, the New York Times was unable to verify the provenance of the weapons and equipment in the images or assess the claim of the command center's existence. So believe it, don't believe it, there's enough to pick from whatever reality you wish. But there's also a little bit of the Times injecting their own reality. You could probably glean from the headlines that the Times was intent on portraying what was found at Al-Shifa as pretty much the referendum on the justification for the war, writing, Israel's ability to prove its claim that Hamas was using hospitals as cover could be key to whether its foreign allies continue to support its military response to Hamas's attack. I mean, that could be the key, or some other considerations like the importance of destroying a terrorist network that could override it in the eyes of some allies. So while in Israel, I received a briefing from Tamir Heyman, who is a reserve major general and the former head of military intelligence. Yes, there are tunnels and facilities under Al-Shifa, he said. But he also said the extent and importance of them as a command center were a bit exaggerated. Hamas has used facilities like that all the time, and it's not as if Al-Shifa was the ultimate nerve center of their operations. But other high-ranking officials say, yeah, that's exactly what it is. And another insight along those lines came from prominent Israeli politician Yuli Yoel Edelstein, who, as Minister of Health, steered Israel through the COVID pandemic and before that served as Speaker of the Knesset 2013 through 2020. He insists that Israel is doing all it can to limit civilian casualties, even if Israel's critics insist otherwise. But also, and this is a wrinkle, the fact that the critics don't believe that Israel is doing what it can, or even that people of goodwill throughout the world who are quite understandably bothered by the sight of Palestinian children or babies being moved on stretchers from rubble, even if that opinion takes hold, it cannot mean, he emphasizes, that Israel just says, oh, forget it. We can't win these people over. We might as well conform to their worst accusations. That would be ethically wrong, but more to the point, tactically stupid. 
But yes, there are casualties and we have to keep it to the minimum and not just because we are human beings and we are not Hamas and we have high moral standards, but also because it's our best interest, because it's the, 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 the war clock that will continue ticking as long as the casualties don't go to, to un, unacceptable numbers, let's put it this way. So believe Edelstein about the ticking war clock or don't. Believe a Qatari professor granted a snarky column in the Daily Beast if that's your North Star. Or trust the New York Times in its chronically hedged style that reads to me as if it's saying that there is evidence of tunnels, weapons, and facilities, but maybe reads to you as if they're saying they can't prove that there are tunnels, weapons, and facilities. That's why I truly question one detail of the entire framing. Remember what I just read? It's the part about Israel's ability to prove its claim could be the key to ongoing operations. The ability to prove its claim. There is precious little in the world of 2023 that can be said to be proved ever with any story. Much of the campus protest movement is rooted in the belief of postmodernism, which is to say there is no such thing as the truth or proof. There is only power and perspectives. Unlike a battle against Hamas, where thousands of militants have been captured or killed, the battle of ideas, the battle of interpretations, can never be declared over. And the combatants know this. And since you are a combatant, I thought you should know this too. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara produces The Gist. Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is CLFAO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is produced in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, and thank you. Thank you for listening all week. We'll have a special show tomorrow. <laughs>